Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hope Midtown. I just want to say thank you again for being a part of our service here today, and I'm so glad to see each and every one of you. My name is Jordan, and I'm so glad to get to share out of this text with you today. I love this text. I love scripture as a whole, but I love this text specifically. One of the invitations that I think each and every one of us have when we hear scripture, when we read scripture, is to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now, in the Psalms, there's this saying that says, come and see the beauty of the Lord. And I think there's something about scripture, and this scripture particularly, that is just brimming with beauty, absolutely filled with beauty. It's a story of reconciliation, of family, of lostness and foundness. This story, without a doubt, is beautiful. There's, there's an intrinsic beauty to this story. I think today this text speaks to the place we're in as well, this city, New York. Uh, if you live in the city, there are all kinds of people here. There's some folks that have been here their whole lives, that this is just their home. It's where they're from. My wife, Emily, has been here her whole life since her childhood. She started taking the subway alone when she was like nine years old. The city is just a part of her. It's, 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 it's her home. There are others of us that have found home here in New York City, right? That we might have come here from different countries, from different parts and states of this country, and we've found a home here, and we're here to stay. There's something about this place that we've found a place for ourselves. And for others of us, this is just a place of transition. We're here for one job, for our education, for a moment, for a relationship, right? We don't know how long we're going to stay, and we don't know the duration of that. This city is so large and filled with so many different experiences of people that I think it makes a great place to run away to. There are all kinds of places you can go in the city to run away. There are five boroughs you can escape at any moment you want. New York City is a place of escape and lostness and foundness as well. And I think it's why today this story is so, it resonates so much. And uh, for me today, this story is very meaningful uh, in my personal life. When I was 19, I literally ran away. I, running away is a part of my story. I was a very dramatic and hormonal uh, teenager. I made decisions rashly on a dime. And when I was 19 years old, I was in college here in New York City, I felt like my life was over and that I was at my wit's end. I was about to fail out of my college education. There was a medical crisis in my family that felt like it was tearing us apart. And I had felt like most of my meaningful childhood relationships, most of my meaningful friendships and relationships had been lost or drifted apart. In this huge city filled with people, I felt alone, I felt overwhelmed, and despite all the opportunity here, I felt like my life was over. That might be your experience. There might have been a time in your life where that happened. And like me, you might have felt tempted. And what I did do was I tried to run away. I felt like there was nothing left for me in New York. I felt like I had failed my family and my community, everyone who had invested in me. And I felt like there was nothing left for me here. I did my best to cut off all my connections, to let go of all my possessions, and I left goodbye notes to my close friends and my family. And I took a 5 a.m. bus out of the city to Pittsburgh, trying to escape. 
I left with just some food, some maps, and I left the state doing my best to disappear without a trace. I ran away hoping that there was something better because I felt like there was nothing left for me here at home. Well, we'll jump back into that story in just a bit, but spoiler alert, obviously, I came back. I'm here. Uh, Jordan Varghese is not an alias. It is not an adopted identity. I am not in hiding. Uh, I returned home back to my family. Uh, God worked through that moment, and uh, there's been reconciliation there. My mom still watches all the recordings of every time I preach. Hello, mom. Just wanted to say hi. Shout out to you. Uh, and we'll, we'll circle back to that story in just a second, but I want to dive into our text first before we go forward. Now, this story starts with verse 1 to 3, and it, it starts with this scene of Jesus surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. Now, what we need to know about tax collectors and sinners is that they are the bad crowd of ancient Palestine. They are the unsavory types, the people that you do not want to be around. They're messed up folk. It was expected that a religious teacher, someone who's teaching the truth of God, would attract godly people, right? That would be your expectation. You would think that as Jesus taught on religion, on the relationship with God, he would be of primary interest to the religiously observant. But that was not the case with Jesus. That deeply confused the Pharisees, who were the deeply religious, the deeply, like, meticulously religious of the day. And they were confused why these people were so attracted to Jesus and why Jesus would even give them the time of day. So as he sees this response from the Pharisees, Jesus tells this story. He tells this parable. It's a collection of actually three stories uh, put together. Now, last week, Solomon, he taught us from the first two stories. That first story is, is about a sheep and a, and a shepherd that is looking for them. In this story, we learn that Jesus is the shepherd who is looking for sheep that have gone astray, that have gone lost. He's the true, the great, and the chief shepherd. He knows every single one of his sheep down to every single piece of wool on their bodies in the same way Jesus knows us. We, his sheep, the shepherd knows us. Solomon also told us about the second story, the story of the woman and the lost coin. And this woman searches diligently through her whole house to find this lost coin. She turns on all the lights, she upends all the furniture, combing her whole, whole house to find this. And when she finally gets it, she celebrates. This woman represents the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, lighting, lighting our hearts, enlightening our beings, so that the truth of God, his love and his forgiveness, can penetrate the depths of our being. These are the first two stories in this parable, and finally, we land on this third parable, the father and the two sons. Today, I hope to share with you from this story about the boundless, ever, never-ending forgiveness, mercy, and love of God, and the joy of repentance. When I think of repentance, when many of us think of repentance, we think about hiding away in a corner, hiding from God, afraid to share our faults, our failures. But that is not what forgiveness is in this passage. Forgiveness is a matter of dancing and singing and partying. My hope today is that as we explore this forgiveness of God, that we would experience repentance as a joyous thing, as a, as a party. So let's dive into the action of this story today. 
It begins by saying this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So this son goes up to his father and he says, I want my inheritance early. I want what you will leave, to me, leave for me when you die. I want it early. Just like today in the ancient Middle East, a parent, when they die, would leave their property, their possessions, their wealth to their children for their good, right? And sometimes if a father would want to retire early, take it easy, kind of give up responsibility to his children, he might say, hey, I'm going to give you this inheritance early. I'm going to relax now. It's time to retire. However, the idea of a son approaching his father and saying, I want my inheritance early, was unheard of. It was a slap in the face. Essentially by saying, I want the inheritance early, by saying that, he is saying, hurry up and die. He is saying, I'm tired of waiting for this money. I want you to die now. I want the wealth now. The younger son to the father is saying, I am through with you, and I don't want you, but I want your money, so give it to me. I want for a moment for us to enter into that experience of what the father heard in that moment, right? I know and I'm sure that we've all heard words spoken to us in times in our life that have felt like daggers in our heart, that have felt like we were being stabbed deeply, a a painful word, an insult, something that just felt unforgivable. It might have been a moment in our lives where a loved one or a family member said to us essentially, I'm through with you. I'm done with you in this relationship. Maybe it was a friendship that was coming to an end. Maybe it was a breakup or an estranged relationship with a family member. Whether it was deserved or not or expected or surprising, the sting of betrayal and loss leaves wounds in us that feel like they might never heal. I'm sure some of us have those wounds today. We we carry that with us. That was the sting the father felt when the son made this demand of him. Back to when I was 19, on the day that I left, I sent an email to my parents to let them know that I was leaving. Now, I didn't blame them for anything. I wasn't trying to say, this is your fault that I'm leaving. But essentially what I was telling them was, I have messed up my life completely. I have made a complete mess and mistake of everything I've done. I have failed you, I have failed myself, and I need to leave and say goodbye to you. Again, I was a very dramatic teenager. I had a very emotional farewell letter to my parents. And again, not harsh words, not blame, but everything was bad and I just needed to go. I'm glad I could look back on it and laugh. But when I talk to my dad about that, when I talk to my parents about this moment, my dad says he was cleaning the house, he looked at his phone and realized he had this email in his inbox. And when he read the words that I'm leaving and I'm not telling you where I'm going, he says that it was earth shattering. It was like the whole earth had stopped rotating. He told me that when he read those words and he realized that he had lost his son, he said that it felt like his heart had fallen out of his body. If you're a parent here, you can probably uniquely understand what this father is going through, what my dad was going through. The prospect of losing your child, not 
out of tragedy, but out of their desire to get away, to leave, to end a relationship. It is heart-wrenching. It's unfathomable pain to lose a relationship like that. And here comes the first major twist in this story. Here's the thing that shocks our cultural expectations and the cultural expectations of the hearers of this passage. The father obliges. The father says, yes, I will do that. I will take this wound, I will take this insult, and I will actually say yes to you. So it says that he divides his property. And what's interesting about this is that in the Greek, the word used for property there is not the word for wealth or material goods or possessions or inanimate objects. The word there is bios. You might notice it looks like the word bios, right? Biology, life. What this text is saying is that the father, what this experience is like for him is his whole life is being torn apart by this demand. And he willingly does it. The father willingly tears apart his life to emotionally experiencing the loss of his whole life to give his, to give, to give his son what he asked. This is not just an emotional division of his life, though. Again, back in this time, they did not have like liquidated assets, Bitcoin, a, a savings account to kind of give stuff away, to, to transfer money. Most of this father's possessions were most likely in property, in livestock, in the relationships and servants that they had. So for this father to give this to his son, it meant that he was upending his whole life, selling off parts of his home, giving away livestock, the things that feed him, the things that feed his family, this father's whole life was upended to, to meet the demand. The father was literally giving his life away, not just emotionally, but he dismantled the whole life he built for his family so that his son could receive this gift. So the younger son, after dealing this blow to his father, after dealing this blow to the family, he leaves. He goes off, he takes his newfound wealth, he goes to a, a new country and enjoys his wealth there. It says that he squandered every single cent. He uses it all up. So a combination of unwise decisions, of bad spending habits, plus a national food shortage, unfortunate circumstances, it leads to the younger brother hitting rock bottom. It says in the text that he is so hungry, he fe he's feeding pigs as his job just to get by. He's so hungry that he wants to eat the food that they're feeding the pigs. It's in this moment that he realizes what he needs to do. Here's how the text puts it exactly. It says in verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? But here I am starving to death. What's really powerful about this is sometimes the literal translation of a text can be really helpful for us to understand what's happening underneath the surface. Now, the literal translation of the Greek here, uh, that, that phrase, when he came to his senses, it's actually when he came to himself, when he came of himself. See, this is the first step, I think, in repentance always. This son in this moment, this younger brother is coming to the awareness of his situation. And what that means is an awareness of himself. Now, 
if you've been a part of our church community here for any amount of time, let's say 25 minutes, someone has probably invited you to or asked you about emotionally healthy spirituality. There's, there's something we believe here at our church, that there is no such thing as spiritually, spiritual maturity without emotional maturity. That all awareness of God must be tied to an awareness of ourselves, because God is someone that works in us and through us. So if we don't know what's happening in us, how would we hear God? So, in this text, when it says that he came of himself, there is an awareness of how he feels about the situation he's in. He's coming to grips with what he's done, the wrongdoing that's happened, and he's saying, I need to figure out a way to fix I need to figure out a way to, to act on this. Self-awareness is a required step in the journey to the awareness of God and the awareness of forgiveness. It's taking honest stock of our situation and, and thinking, what, what can I do about this? What, what should I do about this? Who can I turn to? It's admitting that we can't solve all our problems and that we are in need. It requires humility, awareness, and acceptance of our limits. And that's that first step of repentance in this passage. It's that honest conversation with ourselves like the son had. The emotional work of taking stock and being aware of our past and the decisions that came about. So the son comes up with this confession and this plan in, in, in the next verse. It says in verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. I think one of the tensions of this passage arises here. I think it's the question that is often on many of our hearts, on our minds. Is this a genuine confession? Is this an actual apology? Or is this like, is he just self, is this a ploy to get what he wants? Uh, is it just a self-interested desire to get back the wealth that he lost? And people have argued both sides. People have made really good convincing arguments about why it might be both. And honestly, I think the answer is both. I think it is genuine repentance, and I think it is also self-interested. And that's okay. I think that's actually okay, and here's why. I think when it comes to repentance, we often get trapped in thinking some things are all of repentance, and like we just fall into this trap where we think that repentance looks a certain way, and it must be like a, a specific type of feeling, a specific type of behavior. And for as long as I've been a Christian, I have heard myself asking, I've heard others ask, will God keep forgiving if I keep messing up? Will, will it still count as repentance and forgiveness if I make that mistake again? If I act out in anger once again, if I overindulge one more time, if I fall back into addiction, if I don't tell the truth, right? There's this kind of constant fear that I think some of us have of, does my repentance count? We, we think that there might be a time when we run out of chances. And here's why. I think we, we fail to see what repentance is sometimes. Sometimes I think we think that repentance is just remorse. See, remorse is a really important feeling in the journey of repentance. It's a part of our human experience. It's the feeling of regret, disappointment, sadness, as we think about the things that we've done. However, when repentance is just remorse, 
what happens is that we just kind of fall into ourselves. We just become this like ball of pity, of sadness, of self-hate. And unlike the sun, we can never think of something better. We can never think that there's something better that we can return to. If repentance is just remorse, we just are left with despair and fear. That's what makes this man's repentance so powerful, is that he says, I want to go back home. Even though things are terrible here, even though I've made a mess of my life, I actually want to return back to my father. There is something better for me there. That's the first trap that we can fall to, is when we only think of repentance as remorse. I think a second trap we can fall to is repentance is just penance. Now, penance is its religious term that has been used for a long time, and it, it kind of means like making up for your wrongdoings. And I think making up for our wrongdoings is an important part of the Christian journey. We are called to love our neighbors, to right our wrongs, to, to seek forgiveness. But if we do those things to try to even the score of our wrongdoings, to kind of fix all our mistakes, I think we fall into the trap of not actually seeking grace, of not actually receiving forgiveness. See, the son realized he could not work to earn back all the money that he lost from his father. He couldn't work to earn any of it. He knew all he could do was go to the father. So repentance can't just be, oh, I'm going to work at it, I'm going to fix it. Repentance isn't having a foolproof plan to never mess up again. It's not feeling exceptionally sorry, and it's not trying to even the odds, even the things you've done wrong. Repentance is simple as coming home. It's admitting what I've been doing, what I've done isn't working for me and my community, and I want a better way. I want to go back to whatever God has for me. That is the invitation of repentance. It's trying and the willingness to continue to try and to rely on God. There doesn't need to be a performative regret, kind of a performative apology. There doesn't need to be a hundred-point plan on how you'll never misstep again. God is, in the, God is, is the one who works to do that. He's done the work. There's, one of my favorite verses is in Hebrews where it says, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the finisher of our faith. So we're not the ones that kind of work to fix all the plugs in our faith, all the mistakes we've done. That's Jesus's job. So what we need to do is just say, I want to turn back to you, God. I just want to come home and rely on you. And if you don't think that's true, if you think that, well, there must be a catch. God can't just willingly accept me as long as I'm willing to try. Let's look at the text. Let's look at what the father says when the son comes back home. Here's what it says, starting in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. There was no shame for the father in embracing his son. Back then, men would often wear robes because of the, the kind of intense heat of that, of that climate. Um, and for a man to run, it would mean he'd be picking up his robes, exposing his hairy legs to the world, and running. This man is an old man. This is a deeply kind of, for this culture, a deeply shameful thing. And yet the father, without a care in the world, with all the affection in his heart runs to jump on his lost son and to celebrate the fact that he's found. 
When I was 19, I had run away. I, I checked myself into a shelter in Pittsburgh, um, trying to start my life over, trying to right all the wrongs that I had done and get a fresh start. And I'll share a little bit, bit, bit more about this next week on, on some of the things that went down. But due to the providence of God and some really hard work of the community around me, they were able to pinpoint me. I didn't have a phone. I didn't leave any trace of where I was going. But they found me. They found the shelter I was staying in. And my dad called the shelter and asked to speak to me. And the director of that shelter came up to me, gave me the phone. And the first thing that my father said to me as I heard his voice on the phone was, Jordan, come home. We want you back. There was not a hint of accusation, a hint of bitterness or anger in his voice in that moment. I remember when my dad drove from New York to Pittsburgh to come pick me up. I was a full-grown 19-year-old boy. Like, I was a man. I was an adult. I was, I was able to vote. Uh, I, was, I was a full-grown man. And my dad came to me. I entered the car with him. And the only thing I felt like I could do in that moment was to put my head on his lap and lie down. We are not the softest family. We don't always have the most physical touch or affection in our home. But it was in this moment of softness and gentleness that I realized how much my father loved me and how much he had always loved me. I think there are moments in our life where the love of God shines through our relationships, shines through the acts of the people around us. It's like light hitting a mirror and filling a whole house with light, right? In that moment, I experienced the love of my dad. I experienced the love of God. It was also in that moment that I realized that my father was not ashamed of me. Despite everything I had done, despite the pain I had put my family through, my dad was not ashamed of me, and God is not ashamed of me. Today, if you think that God is ashamed of you and that he's through with you, that God hates you, I need you to know that that is the furthest thing from the truth. The love of God, the forgiveness and mercy of God shows no bounds. It spares no expense. It goes without limit. And no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you feel like you've failed God, you've fallen short, there is no inch of you that is not loved by God. Again, we see this in this passage and how the father treats the son as he returns. It says this, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. The father spares no expense to celebrate the return of his son. The father is so glad and joyous and filled with happiness about this. He gives him three gifts, and these gifts are meaningful. This son was dirty, sweaty, gross, working with pigs, traveling back. And the first thing the father gives him is a robe to clothe him, to take away his poverty, to take away his dirtiness, his, the filth that was literally on him. He gives him a robe. In the Bible, it says that we are clothed in Christ, that God has given us Jesus 
to, for, for all of our imperfections, we are covered in the perfection of Jesus through the power of the cross. That is what happens in this passage. He then gives him the ring. A ring back then was often a signet ring. It was a ring with a family crest on it. It might have had a family symbol on it. It was a way that no matter where you went, everyone knew whose family you were a part of. The son thought that I don't belong to this family when I get back anymore. I'm not a son anymore. But the father gives him this ring to remind him that there is nothing that can remove him from the identity of God. You are a child of God, and there is nothing that can remove that for you. When we come to the Father and we ask him to forgive us, when we come to the Father and depend on his grace and his mercy, there is nothing that can remove us from the love of God. Our identity is hidden in him. And finally, the Father gives him shoes. And what shoes meant in this culture was if you were a servant or a, or a, a slave in this time, you didn't wear shoes often. You would walk barefoot. But by the Father giving this son, a shoe. He's, what he's saying is, you are, you are fully belonging to me. You, are, you have status. You have authority. You have power here. I am giving that to you today. This is the gospel of Jesus, fully in display, uh, plain as day, the generosity of God trifold. First, to absorb and allow the mistakes of the son. He, he, the father absorbs this blow, losing half of his property, losing one-third of his property so that his son can go off. The father absorbs that and forgives it. Second, the father offers all of the resources required to reinstate the, father, the, reinstate the son. He gives him a ring, a cloak, all these things, things that did not belong to the son. The son had already wasted all of his inheritance, and the father still spends more to reinstate him. And thirdly, most powerfully, I think, is this. The father doesn't just work and spend and offer resources to reinstate him, doesn't just offer resources to to say it's okay what you've done. He offers and generously provides resources just to celebrate the son, just to celebrate us as children of God. The son had wasted it all, had make, made every mistake he possibly could, and yet this is who our God is, the ever-loving, ever-forgiveness, always-generous father of all, who today wants you to know how much you are loved and how much you are forgiven. That's why I think we often actually get the passage, this, this parable wrong. We often call it the story of the prodigal son. I think that's actually a misnaming of this passage. See, the word prodigal does not mean lost. It doesn't mean wayward. It doesn't mean missing. The word prodigal means spendthrift. It means needlessly extravagant, uh, uh, irresponsible with money. And I understand why we call the son the prodigal son. He left and he spent all that money. And yet, there's a little bit of a flip that happens here. We see in this passage, it's not just the sons that prodigal. It's God himself, the father who is prodigal, willing to spend it all for the sake of the son. God has done that for us. When he offered Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, he gave that to us, spent it all just so we would be his family. That is the beauty of this passage, that our God is a prodigal God, willing to spend it all for your sake. And it's why we can repent with joy. 
we'll enter into a time of reflection and worship. So I'm going to invite the worship team back on. And what I want us to know as we think about the ways that we need to return home, as we think about the ways that God is inviting us to receive his grace, receive his joy, receive his forgiveness and mercy, is that we don't need to solve our mistakes. We don't need to make everything right in our lives. We don't have the power to do that. What we can do is reevaluate our lives, the decisions we've made, the things that we are doing wrong, and the ways we need to change, and offer that to God, and willingly, joyfully take that from Him. As we reflect, I want to invite you to think about where in your life might you be called to repentance? Where, might, where in your life is something just not working, a way of doing things, a set of decisions? What is God calling you to let go of and to come home, not to fall into a pit of despair, not to work to earn your way back home, but to just return home, come back into the household of God? In the Psalms, there's all these phrases of better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That's repentance. It's just the decision, the valuation that God's home is better than anywhere else and the desire to come back there. So we'll enter into a time of reflection and enter into a time of worship. In a moment, there will also be people here that will be able to pray with you. I think repentance is something best done in community. A party isn't a party until there's more than one person. I think repentance is best done together. There'll be people here to pray with you, and I want to invite you, if you need that, to come up. So let me pray for us as we enter this time of worship. Lord, you are the prodigal God, and Jesus, you were the price paid for us. You were the price paid, willing to go beyond, above and beyond for us. Lord, there's not an inch of the world that you wouldn't scour to find us. There's not a price you wouldn't pay. You are so forgiving and merciful and loving. And repentance is a celebration of that love and that grace. So I pray that as we think about repentance, that we would not be filled with dread, we would not be filled with fear, but we would be singing and dancing, filled with joy for the God that loves us, that pours himself out for us. So Lord, today, I pray that the grace of God would continue to be poured out on the people of God, that we would be a people of dancing and singing of joy and salvation. Lord, speak to us and reveal, us, reveal to us whatever you need to reveal to us today and bring us into repentance. We ask for this in your name. Amen.